I hope, uh, I hope everyone took note of that closing credit there. Any resemblance to real-life events is completely coincidental. Um, please welcome to the stage the director of Suspiria, Luca Guadagnino. Oh, come there. Luca, congratulations on the film. Um, Thank you. This is your first foray into horror. And I think, you know, horror is one of these genres that um, a lot of people enjoy because there's this sort of surface of chaos, but then it actually abides by rules that the audience understands. You know, you have cat scares, final girls, and all of this kind of stuff. And the, the mechanisms of Suspiria struck me as being completely different because you have this sense as an audience that there are lots of very explicit rules on show that you just can't comprehend at all. There are structures, power structures going on there, uh, you know, within the dance studio, within the world at large, and actually trying to get a, an idea of how the world is working, you know, within the studio, out with the studio, what's to come, is what makes it so scary. So did you approach it as uh, a straight horror film, or were you, you trying to kind of play with the genre a bit and, uh, and, and, and suss out what different things could be done? Uh, good evening. Uh, um, I have to say, first of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a big horror fan. I grew up loving horror films. I always dreamt that my first film was going to be a horror movie, uh, whether it was uh, like uh, my love for horror came from the cinema of uh, Murnau or of Friedkin or, or was like uh, Friday the 13th or... Um, uh, final Destination. Uh, what I've always been very restless about when it came to the way in which I thought of things and, and I wanted to do things is to, to, to work on, on a set of rules that came from a textbook. That I can't do. I don't know how to do it. What I knew in, in approaching horror was that, uh, and what we all wanted from Dave Kajanek, the, the wonderful writer who wrote the script, to all the cast and my collaborators, my brilliant editor, and not just an editor, Walter Fazzano, is that we wanted to make sure that uh, it wasn't about a moment in which you jump on the seat or something like that. We wanted to do something that was, uh, uh, as Freud would say, unheimlich, uncanny, from start to finish, that could be, in a way, a twisted sense of familiarity that let you be in, but at the same time that connected you, the audience, hopefully, with something deep and disturbing. I think a key part of uh, the way in which the film does that is the fact it's very, very specifically grounded in the historical moment. You've got everything unfolding in the German autumn with the hijacked Lufthansa jet and the talk of the Bader-Meinhof gang on the news every night. Um, why ground it so specifically at that time period? I mean, because the, the Argento version is, is, is a kind of a world apart, you know, it's removed <clears throat> from all of that, and that's, that's kind of one of its defining characteristics. I would say because I really loved Dario's film, and, and uh, like every love uh, becomes a sort of fetishizing thing. 
and I started to have a fetish on this film by Dario. And one of the things that was resonant, resonating in me, maybe because they looked like a blade, it was the 77 of the time in which the movie was released, um, which is a great year for cinema, by the way. And so uh, I never diverted away from 1977 as a sort of really important uh, 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 like rock for my imagination. Uh, and it was the year in which we in Italy saw the increasing uh, violence of uh, the fight between the state and the, and the perverted uh, ways of the uh, Red Brigades, for instance. I remember perfectly that climate at the time, even if I was six and then seven when um, um, Moro was kidnapped by the Brigate Rosso in 78. Um, so when I started to think of the film uh, in less of a dreamlike and daydreaming way as I did for 30 years and in a more precise way with my writer Dave, we said to ourselves, we have our clue here. It's in front of our eyes. It's the year, 1977. And what Indario's film was all about, in a way, a sense of uh, dread and alarm that was uh, completely self-contained in the imagery of Dario and the anxieties of the year in which he and Daria Nicolodi shot the movie, Luciano Tovoli, the great cinematographer, we said, what if we flesh out the horror and we put in comparison, in, in, in mirroring with what was the year, really. That led us to, uh, in a way, a sense of uh, a representation of cruelty that we drew uh, from, uh, from Fassbinder. And yes, and which that's is a key a, connection to 77 as well, because that was when Fassbinder's melodramas were kind of at their height. Well, if you think of the movie, the short film that he, he made for the collective uh, a film called Germany in Autumn, it's a, it's, a, it's a film, this Germany in Autumn, that collects films from other directors, including him, and they all reflect on the different aspects of what we've seen in the film, which is the bad mind of, uh, and the conflict between in society. His movie is the only one who does not approach directly the political topics. It's a, it's a mini melodrama about his feisty relationship with his boyfriend and his contemptuous relationship with his mother, the three of them in one apartment, all very darkly lit. And how the mother he is uh, defiant, defiant of the son and he accuses her of being a collaborationist of the Nazis. This was really a very important uh, 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 stone of paragon, if you can say that in English, <laughs> for us, for me and David, to really go into this world. Mm -hmm. I think in Fassbinder, all the dynamics are dynamics of power, and every dynamics with people is always a dynamic of power. And he's a, he's a great theater of cruelty. What best as a, as a sort of terms of uh, uh, inspiration for a movie that is about uh, power relationship and how they can become very cruel? You mentioned just on, on the point of theatre of cruelty, I noticed in the, in the end credits the Witch's Silver Hook gets its own credit, the design oh, yeah. credit, right? <laughs> so the specificity of the design in this film I absolutely love, and, and specifically that <laughs> weapon is, I mean, the curvature of it and the way in which it rocks on glass surfaces. Um, can you talk us through... When uh, the, yeah, yeah, exactly, that kind of quiver when it's set down. Um, where did that come from? And was, was that a, a, a characteristic you'd seen in some kind of arcane object somewhere? 
Well, the hook has been designed by Ted Muling. Ted Muling is a, a, a fantastic designer who only does little objects. Um, and uh, uh, I love artists, and uh, I am inspired by them, and I'm, I have a sort of life energy from artists. Uh, so it's always a, a great uh, opportunity for me in doing a movie that I can invite people to join the circus and uh, give their own uh, effort into that. And uh, when with Imbal Weinberg, who did the production design of this film, which is like, wow, what a feat, uh, I told her that the hook couldn't be like, that, that, that the way in which they, the, the, the witches were using tools of violence couldn't be like something that was from the kitchen uh, drawer. It had to have some sort of ritualistic aspect to it. And, uh, and I admired that very much, and I thought that he could have done something that was at the same time very modern and also very uh, timeless. He said yes. We sent an email, would you do this? Like, yeah. He did said yes. And three weeks later, we had got the, to the hook, which was fantastic. And in, in, the, in the blocking of the scene between uh, Professor Klemperer and Sarah, uh, when he says to her, give me the hook and bring it to the table, basically the gesture was there and it was clear that we had to end the scene there because this tick, 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 was unsettling enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that ritualistic quality comes across really strongly in the dance itself. And I mean, the 1977 setting is, is I mean, it allows you to bring in the influence of Pina Bausch as well, um, who is so clearly there in Tilda's first character, we can Madame say. Blanc. Madame Blanc. And um, also in the, the style of the choreography itself. Um, we, we even hired a, a light designer who was a very important light designer for underground and, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, more, more uh, edgy uh, uh, theater and dance in the 70s. And we asked him to, to, to find the, light, the lighting system of the time. The light in the dance of folk, it's actually the light that these gentlemen created for us. It's not light that we brought. We wanted to have a sense that we are deep down in that time and in that moment. When David was writing the script, did he go back and look at um, Bausch's sort of philosophy of dance and how that could be applied? Yeah, we, 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 that was interesting because, of course, David is a very precise writer who does a, such a lot of research beautiful, the way in which he finds details. Uh, we, we did a movie together called A Bigger Splash, and I remember when he, when he gave me the first draft, he came with this notion that there was for the Wi-Fi on the island a, a, a cable that had to be put under the water. And I said, how do you know that? He knew it better than I did at being Italian. He knows everything when he starts to do his research. And uh, one thing that happens is that we spend time with the great, great, great choreographer called Sasha Waltz. Uh, who I think is like a hair of the tradition of the Mary Wigmans and the, and the Pina Bausch's. And it was a very interesting conversation that David and Sasha had about uh, what's the position of the choreographer. Who is the choreographer? Uh, is it like, uh, we, we, we were really wary of the fact that we did not want the choreographer to be a sense, uh, to exert power in a sort of a dictatorial way, or that was all about ordering. And it actually was about love. Uh, there was a little uh, polemics about some artwork uh, 
uh, that apparently we've stole for the film, which is not true. But the truth of the matter is that we really went very deep into the experiences of the female artists of the 70s and what meant for these artists, Peter Bausch included, but also visual artists to depict violence and, 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 and to depict all sorts of uh, transformation, violent transformation of the body. And I spoke to this great critic called Lea Vergine. She's the one who really in the, investigated back in the 70s the concept of body performance. She told me it wasn't about uh, uh, dead and violence. It was about the permeability of the body and the giving of love. And I think that comes across very beautifully in how Tilda portrays Madame Blanc and his desperate impossibility in her relationship between within the coven and within herself and Susie. I think it's an extraordinary performance. One of three. <laughs> um, everyone spotted at least one more, I'm sure. Um, but she, so she also plays Klemper, which is now... She, she would say that she plays Lutz Ebersdorf, who plays Klemper. Right. And the third part is... We never said anything, but okay. we, we can say that Tilda plays the id, the ego, and the superego to be pompous. Yes, but right. the so this is, it's, it's the kind of um, Bates Motel way of dividing up the world. So you've got the shrieking voice at the top and then the semblance of normality and then the chaos in the cellar. Yeah. And she's all three. Yeah. Logistically... Who else could have done that? Right, right. But, but, that. but logistically on the shoot, how do you work around that? Because clearly the, the prosthetics for Klemper must have taken a long time. Logistically, it was... Uh, uh, for, for, I'm sure for Tilda was really bad because it meant a lot of time consumed on set and less time in, to be resting. Mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting because um, I like cinema because it's all about uh, creating the illusion of something that doesn't exist. When, when uh, Madame Blanc uh, stares at Mr. Klemperer after the performance of Volk, that was two different days, of course. But now we are at the same time. It's beautiful. Let's open this discussion to, to the floor. Please raise your hand if you have a question. And I think we have mics. There's one up in the, yep, at the side there. There's mics right there. I was wondering if you might actually follow up a little bit on the decision to cast Tilda as Klemperer and also to bring in uh, Marc Coulier, who's one, two, Oscars for makeup, including the last one, interestingly enough, for transforming uh, Tilda into a, a different character. Could you maybe talk about the decision to actually use Tilda as that character and put her into that makeup? Well, of course, I, I wouldn't say use Tilda, but to play with Tilda together. Um, I think this is a movie, uh, I mean, like, tonight I may sound very pompous and... and it's baffling. But I, I, will, I will take the, the, the risk. Um, I was reading a lot about the actual witches and witch hunt that historically happened between the 11th century and the 17th century at the end of it. And as we know now, uh, the concept of witch is something that comes off of a male wording. Is the men, is the, let's say, patriarchism who makes the, let's say, uh, existence of witches. These women 
who were uh, 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 aiming to be together and try to spend, in a way, their own sense of freedom together, they became indicted as witches through these very deadly, heavily deadly, uh, almost genocidal, genocidal period of time from everywhere in Europe. Uh, so, uh, as a filmmaker, I do believe that to represent uh, witches cannot come easily with the idea that, uh, you know, you have the evil character who are the witches. You have to think of what is a witch and why. And I wanted to make a movie that was all about the beautiful contradiction of a group of women who are bound to solidarity, but at the same time are strictly in need to exert power and violence to be alive. In, and they are putting themselves at the border of the real world because that's the way in which they can defend themselves. And so for me, it was immediately clear that even the man had to be a creation of a woman in order to uh, uh, really endorse this concept that was, let's say, antagonizing 500 years of uh, 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 institutional indictment of the women as the witches. Uh, so, first of all, why not? And Tilda said, yes, of course. And Marc Coulier is one of the UK's most uh, proud uh, personalities. He's a, he's a master, he's a genius, he's, he's, he's a great guy, he's a fantastic man. And uh, with my long, long, long time and one of my most close collaborators, who is my makeup artist, Fernanda Perez, we, um, we, we really said, we said, of course, Marc Coulier. I mean, we wished. But we called him and said, yeah, come over. And we went to his place, some place, I think it's in Hertfordshire, nearby. And we started a long conversation that led us to the creation of Lutz Ebersdorf. And then he played Klempera. <laughs> Did you direct Tilda as Lutz? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we, I, I, it's not like, a, like some publicity thing. During the shooting of the movie, very few people knew that that old man was her. I remember that Ingrid Caven was kind of coquettish with Lutz Ebersdorf. <laughs> <laughs> Another question? No more questions. Let me, let me ask something about the, because um, you, you talked about this coven being established on the, the kind of border of the real world. And the, the building itself is extraordinary. And I was wondering if that was a specially constructed set or if that was a location somewhere that you found. Uh, well, I, and how I, much had to be done? I, I needed, I knew we had to have a place that couldn't, that could encompass the place being a character, like as a, for almost like a body. And, and, uh, and so we, we, we found this hotel on the top of a hill on, in Varese, nearby Milan. It's a hotel that had been abandoned in the 60s, and until then was like one of the very most important hotels in, in the Europe. Royalties came there. And it was built uh, at the end of 19th century, and it was in a style that is called Art Nouveau, which was completely different from what we wanted. So Imbal, uh, her team, took over and completely reshaped the place as a modernist kind of Adolf Loss uh, Berlinese uh, environment, and we even built the wall. The wall actually 
went with us. It was a character in itself, because when we went to, to, to Berlin, we brought the wall in every place we were, like, put the wall there, put the wall there. It wasn't as, it wasn't as easy as this, but almost. And uh, so, yeah, we, we really cre remade completely the place. But the greatness about that place is that it functioned as a body. You can see in the depth of field that there is a lot happening in this place, not just where the characters are. Question there. Microphone just coming. Um, I, hello. I was going to ask about um, the kind of the art direction, because obviously Italian cinema at the time and the, the giallo, obviously Suspiria isn't a giallo, um, but it was very technicolor and the, the colors and, and sort of Bava started that with how he kind of lit scenes. Um, you went a very different route with your uh, reimagining of Suspiria. It was kind of much grayer and muted. Can you talk a little bit about the decision that you made to, to go much more that sort of, com I suppose, more communist <laughs> sort of look of the, the scenes? Well, uh, uh, like, I think that, uh, um, like, I believe that uh, um, you can do a movie from anything, from the bottle of water over there. Uh, it's about the point of view, and I think that uh, uh, to remake a movie like Suspiria by Dario Argento and like stepping in his own shoes and trying to emulate, replicate, uh, maybe 4K his colors would have been quite dull action. Uh, because I think he and Luciano Tovoli, his director of photography, and like 10 years later, Storaro and uh, Warren Beatty, they basically said the word end to the usage of primary colors on screen. I think that, as you said, he brought, to, he went to the farther territories with what Mario Bava did for a long time. So there was no, no reason why we had to go there, particularly because we really wanted to soak the movie in the atmosphere of the time. Um, so our really guide, guidance was literally the times, the images of the times, the cinema that we really believed resonated about the times. And we go back to Fassbinder and to the incredible work of Mikhail Balaus for Fassbinder. Uh, um, that was our, let's say, start, starting point. Yeah. I'm also very shy to make a light that is not... Uh, completely uh, understandable by the given reality of the place. Like I think, it's, I, I personally believe it's easy, too easy maybe. Put the red, put the blue, put the red. That's perhaps the one piece of connective tissue between this and Call Me By Your Name, is that the lighting is incredibly naturalistic throughout. And it's Simon Bumuk de Prom, the yes, same yes. incredible uh, Thailandese master who made this, yeah. I, I showed Simon Bu also a lot of paintings uh, of Balthus, which is now not being exposed in America because of the naked girls, unfortunately. Not because of the naked but because he's a master. But this sense of eerie fantasy that is in Balthus, this sense of dread that you don't know where it's coming from, and the usage of browns and blues and greens also was very, very inspirational for us. We have time for one more question, if anyone in the audience has one. Yep, in the middle there. Uh, microphone just coming from, from over there, thanks.
I, I just wondered if there was any intention in, in calling the, the professor Klemperer. Was there a, an intention behind that? Because obviously with Victor Klemperer, it's quite a resonant name. I just wondered if you could explain that. Well, uh, thank you, spot on. Uh, I, I had, I had uh, read uh, the, the language of Third Reich by Victor Klemperer a few years ago, which is a beautiful, it's, it's his diary of surviving through the uh, madness of Nazi Germany in disguise and, 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 and in pretension of being Aryan and with his wife. And because he was a great philologist, he could understand not only the, let's say, bigger picture perversities happening, but the small one that kind of made approvable by the majority of the Germans the atrocities that were happening. The way in which language was perverted by, by the propaganda. Uh, for instance, the usage of the, of the word people. Uh, not, the idea that uh, Germany was the elected country and everything, of, everything was reflected in the way in which propaganda used language. And Mr. Klemper, Victor Klemper, registered that in this beautiful book that I really wish for everybody to read, how this was really a dangerous, terrifying thing, and he could resist that as a person. You know, like, we are influenced continuously by a perversion of the language, whether it's an English language, Italian language, from the way in which, for instance, media decide that we have to understand. You know, like, I rem now they, everybody says fake news, but we all knew that, we all know that there is a way in which things are pushed to us that is not just fake news, it's the way in which advertisement work, but this simple usage of words can make us numb to the effect of how these words are used. So for me and David, it was an homage, of course, but at the same time, we kind of wanted to uh, embody in Josef Klemperer uh, the uh, experience of Victor Klemperer. That is sadly all we've got time for this evening, but Luca, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.